today we are joined by Dr. Mark Clifton of the North Shore Mosquito Abatement District, which works to limit disease and improve quality of life by controlling mosquito populations, and comes to us recommended by the American Mosquito Control Association. Dr. Clifton, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me today. So James said I can jump right in. Um, sure. He and I have had some conversations about mosquito control, and it just kind of boils down to you. I'm curious, why don't some towns have mosquito control? I mean, we live in Michigan. It just seems like a no-brainer. Uh, well, it depends on the state a lot of times uh, and, the, and the locality. Some states have a process for forming mosquito control or mosquito abatement districts. Um, some states really never developed a process and uh, mosquito control, uh, or at least a kind of emergency mosquito control, uh, will be conducted by maybe a local health department. I think uh, in Michigan just recently, uh, there was some recent legislation that more formalized a, a pathway for communities to create mosquito abatement districts. I think it just passed recently. Um, but it's historical. Most uh, mosquito abatement districts were uh, originally, or the laws were passed around the 1900s, um, in 1920, 1910, all, all in there. <clears throat> Wait, what was going on in that era to cause uh, these mosquito control districts to start? Well, um, I think there was, there's always been a, you know, a high burden of mosquito-borne disease in the United States, malaria, uh, especially, uh, especially through the Midwest. And I think around that time is when there was a recognition that mosquitoes were responsible for vector-borne disease. Uh, malaria comes from the Italian for basically bad air, and that's what they thought, you know, vapors from uh, boggy areas caused uh, disease, and, and not until um, around the turn of the century did they really understand that mosquitoes were responsible. And then the materials became available to begin to control mosquitoes, oils to suffocate larvae, or Paris green, which was, uh, I think, an arsenic-based poison. Um, a lot of this was learned in the Panama Canal building around that time. So there was a big push across the country to uh, institute uh, mosquito abatement districts. And so obviously then the primary value is the disease control. And actually, James and I had had that question, you know, was there previously malaria here? Because obviously now we don't hear about malaria in the U.S. So is that due to... Um, controlling mosquitoes? Is that how that came to be? Yeah. Um, you know, Illinois was considered the graveyard of the U.S. As people went west, they would stop over in the Midwest. It's very swampy here, probably parts of Michigan as well. Um, and malaria took a serious toll on, on people going west and people who lived here. Um, I think about 60 or 70 years ago, um, the uh, CDC, or what became the CDC, uh, instituted a nationwide anti-malarial campaign. Uh, DDT was a big part of that um, and was used widespread uh, across the country to uh, eliminate um, mosquitoes, and especially mosquitoes that ca carry the malaria parasite. Also, a lot of drainage projects were initiated, like the district that I run now. Um, our first real mosquito control was dynamite. <laughs> so dra draining a lot of things made a big difference. A lot of habitat modification has happened in the past. It's amazing how much uh, uh, how many problems we solved with dynamite in the past. Uh, yeah. I know uh, <laughs> farms that were upset with crows would just dynamite them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's the first mosquito control is dynamite. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I mean, you know, here in, in Illinois, they were originally charged with uh, blasting canals or whatever, or dredging and and just eliminating habitat. Um, 
But uh, if you can, you know, eradicate the parasite, the malaria parasite, um, it, it's hard to reintroduce it, um, especially with modern mosquito control. Now, there's other so things. Can you dwell on that? I'm not familiar with how malaria spreads other than like, uh, you get bit by a mosquito and sometimes you get it. Yeah, well, it would have to be an Anopheles mosquito, and it would have to be um, a Plasmodium parasite, and it would, uh, you know, you get it from a mosquito, and then uh, over time become and uh, have a high enough amount of the uh, the parasite that a you know a mosquito would bite you again and become infected, and then you know propagate the cycle. Um, if you can interrupt that cycle between person and and mosquito, you can uh, you know disrupt transmission. Screens had a lot to do with that too. Air conditioning and window screens uh, played a, a tremendous role yeah. in breaking that cycle. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but we have other things now. I mean, uh, malaria mostly eradicated in the United States. There's introductions when people arrive from overseas. Uh, maybe they were infected overseas. Um, so there is, you know, occasional um, occurrences of malaria. But well, we have viral viral diseases now. <clears throat> and you'd mentioned you know, before the, it started with dynamite, but how exactly do we control mosquitoes now? Uh, so uh, now we, most programs will use what's called an integrated mosquito management or integrated vector management approach. And this requires a lot of different e efforts um, in a lot of different ways to control mosquitoes. Um, you can imagine it kind of like a pyramid um, and the foundation of the pyramid would be um, things like educating the public, uh, public outreach, uh, things like source reduction, you know, removing places where mosquitoes live. Um, that takes the bulk of a, of a program's efforts. And then you move up the pyramid to more direct interventions. So things like biological larvicides, um, those are bacterial uh, larvicides that are specific for mosquitoes. Many programs rely heavily on those. Um, uh, uh, understanding and monitoring uh, mosquitoes, so knowing which kind of mosquitoes you have and where they're um, reproducing, all that's critical, the surveillance aspect. And then you would move eventually up the pyramid to um, chemical control, um, typically, and that's a, a disease response situation. I know in Michigan you had Triple uh, E and some of the first aerial spraying ever uh, last year, I believe. Um, and that's the pinnacle of the pyramid when uh, there are no other interventions really available. You move to a, a chemical intervention to try and prevent a human illness. <clears throat> okay, so can you break that down for a little bit? What uh, uh, What is a bacterial larvicide and how does it work? Well, um, you probably, most people probably heard of them as a BT. Um, and it's used commonly, and it's a bacteria, uh, Bacillus thuringiensis, used commonly in forestry. There's a strain of uh, Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, which is very specific for mosquitoes. Uh, this bacteria was found in a soil sample in the Israeli desert, the Negev desert, um, and uh, is one of the most important public health tools uh, <laughs> known to man, really. Uh, it produces four different toxins that disrupt the gut of a feeding larval mosquito. So far, mosquitoes have not evolved resistance to it. It's highly effective, and uh, we rely on it greatly to prevent adult mosquitoes from even happening. <clears throat> so that's just uh, try and find places where there's going to be larval mosquitoes, and you just drop a couple of drops of this bacteria in, into it? Or how's that yeah, work? It, it can come as a liquid. It can come in a granular form. It can come as a briquette. Um, 
we have uh, software where uh, all of our larval habitat is mapped. It's usually every year you get the same kinds of larval habitat. You, you know, every year the same places flood. Um, and yeah. uh, some of the um, oh, what do they called? I learned this from our forestry friend. Uh, for vernal pools. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. Vernal pools are a little deeper, and typically will have predators, uh, amphibians, and stuff. They're not great uh, mosquito habitat. Okay. So these are even more uh, ephemeral than a vernal pool. Well, water that would last a week or two weeks, not maybe a month like a vernal pool would. So um, somewhat more temporary. But we have them all mapped, and uh, once the weather um, in the season is right about for us about mid-April uh, we have uh, staff that go out and check and when as soon as they find larvae we will uh, treat it with a granular material or with a liquid a variety of different mechanisms they can be done by aircraft if the area is big enough I think in, in Michigan that's much more common is uh, aerial treatment of agricultural uh, flooded areas or forested areas and and yeah as the larvae grow they they feed on this uh, bacteria because it's in the water column and uh, bacteria uh, Mosquitoes are filter feeders, and they ingest it, and it kills them. It's kind of jumping ahead in the questions I have, but That's okay. talking about um, different ways to, to kill them and ingesting them. Um, you talked about the top of the pyramid. I know I've heard a lot of the sensational news stories about genetic modifications of of mosquitoes. Is that something you think we'll ever see on a practical level, or is that just something that science is looking at and able to do, but likely isn't going to come to your local mosquito control efforts? Well, so far, most of those technologies have been focused on um, Aedes aegypti, which is a tropical or maybe subtropical um, uh, exclusive pest of man. Um, and it's that mosquito is responsible for dengue and Zika and chikungunya uh, in a lot mm -hmm. of parts of the world. Um, but it doesn't live in more temperate areas, uh, our mosquito pest is, or vector actually, is a Culex mosquito, Culex pipiens. And that same technology has not been developed for Culex pipiens. Um, so it, it, for most people in the country, it, it won't be coming to your local mosquito abatement soon. Um, <laughs> uh, but in, in Florida, I mean, they're trying this in the Keys. So I think in Florida and then maybe in Texas and through the Southeast, uh, it's possible that that would appear, you know, in the next five or 10 years uh, in widespread operational usage. But uh, until they do more work with QLX mosquitoes uh, in this realm, it, it, you know, is not likely. <clears throat> so you've got uh, habitat maintenance, you've got uh, your bacterial larvicide, and you said that uh, the next step is the chemical control. And when do you use that and why? So uh, most programs uh, across the country would monitor for um, viruses. Um, ours monitors for West Nile, which occurs every year, uh, and also St. Louis encephalitis we screen for. Um, we ha know when there's a certain infection rate in mosquitoes that human illness is likely to follow. Um, every year we have human cases of West Nile. Some years are worse than others. Um, so when we reach an infection rate, and actually it's called a vector index, and it's uh, made up of uh, infection rate of mosquitoes and then also made up of the abundance of mosquitoes. So the more you have and the more infected they are, the higher your vector mm -hmm. index is. Uh, when well, it gets to uh, a, factors working with each other kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this, you know, it could be just a, a few out of a thousand mosquitoes, but if you have thousands of mosquitoes, a really productive year, 
um, you know, there's going to be millions of infected mosquitoes around. Uh, and when we hit those kinds of thresholds, um, that would institute, um, then we would institute, you know, uh, adult, what we would call adult mosquito control or chemical intervention. So that would be what is commonly referred to as ULV adult control, <clears throat> ultra low volume adult control through truck or aircraft. You saw that in Miami with Zika uh, and then in Michigan, I think uh, Massachusetts also uh, last year, maybe two years ago, did some because of Tripoli. And when you say Tripoli, that's that equine encephalitis. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Eastern equine encephalomyelitis, yes. So how do you figure out what diseases are around that are being carried by mosquitoes in the first place? Well, we have to trap them. And so we have a variety of different traps for trapping different species of mosquitoes. And then uh, we'll bring them in the lab and then use um, uh, basically the uh, similar test, a PCR-based test, similar to what they're using uh, to maybe test for COVID or other sorts of uh, viral uh, diseases. So we just test the mosquitoes. We pull them together and, and then test them. So on that case, sometimes you just get some bad news about what's in your mosquitoes? <laughs> Well, you're only going to find what you're looking for. So there could be things we're not looking for. I mean, it's possible. But uh, yeah, I mean, we pretty much uh, in, in Chicago has uh, Cook County has the third highest incidence uh, um, of West Nile virus uh, in the country, only behind, I think, Arizona, maybe Maricopa and somewhere in California. So every year we're going to have West Nile and we know about, you know, June, beginning of June, we're going to start finding positive mosquito pools. And then it just it ramps up from there. So how uh, we've talked a lot about disease control, but how much does the fact that people don't like to be bitten by mosquitoes factor into how much we're controlling for them? Right. So uh, you know, nuisance or quality of life is is a serious issue as well, and I, I think it gets undersold a lot. Um, our mission is uh, first focused on public health and preventing human illness, but secondary. To that is uh, the protection of the quality of life. In a lot of places, um, mosquitoes can become so productive, so prolific, that you really can't even go outside. There, there are cases in uh, southwest Florida of uh, mosquitoes suffocating calves and cattle because they would, <laughs> they would clog the, the, the nostrils. They stick to the, you know, the mucus in the nostrils, and they kind of clog it up. It happened in 1986 last um, and, uh, you know, we have a mosquito, Aedes vexans, uh, uh, inland floodwater mosquito, and it is nearly as prolific if we weren't kind of um, mitigating some of the peaks in population. It'll chase you out of your backyard. I mean, they, they really can. And, you know, a lot of economic development um, has been tied to mosquito control, especially in the South, but even here in the Midwest. Quality of life, being able to use uh, public spaces is all tied to mosquito control. So it's not as quantifiable, but it is really important to people. You know. Yeah, I, I remember um, reading my Alexis de Tocqueville. He came to Michigan once, uh, him and his friend, <laughs> and just couldn't re uh, kept remarking about how much he hated mosquitoes. Yeah, it's flat. It's flat. <laughs> It, but that brings me to a question that, you know, in, in talking about just mosquito control policies, it came up that, you know, not everyone, not every municipality has a program. Why is that? Like how, why wouldn't a county or city or whatever have mosquito control policies in place? Kind of what's the the logic there to not do it if we see so many benefits from, you know, whether it's just comfort and being able to enjoy ourselves outdoors or truly, you know, disease control. 
I, th I think, you know, I don't know the exact answer, but I suspect it has to do with the density of humans living there. Uh, in a lot of communities, the folks will just kind of deal with it. Um, you know, they, they are used to it, um, especially maybe in more rural places, and, and they'll just put up with it. But, you know, in Michigan, you have three or four programs, and they're all centered around uh, more populous uh, areas. Um, and then I think when you have a full-blown city, you're not, you're not, you're not going to get those nuisance issues, uh, you know, the same because you're not going to have the same kinds of flood water. Um, but, you know, West Nile is still a thing. And most cities uh, will run, um, like here in Chicago, the city runs a program to help mitigate West Nile. Uh, they contract for that. So uh, there's a lot of different ways of getting mosquito control. Districts are, are one mechanism, but there is a lot of contractors that do this for hire for municipalities, too. So... Uh, they may fly under the radar or fly under this conversation, you know, so. Well, I'm actually kind of curious about those, or at mm -hmm. least other ways of, of doing this other than scientific management of your habitat. Um, and then what are some of the other ways that that uh, that people provide these mosquito control services? Uh, well, if a contractor's doing it, they're going to also follow an integrated approach uh, to the to the extent that the money and the ability is there to do it. They're, they're going to. That is, uh, integrated vector management derives from in integrated pest management, which is a you know an approach to hand, uh, using pesticides in the agricultural environment. The idea is that you don't just use pesticides because you can. You know, you have mm. to have a threshold. You have to balance it with other sorts of interventions and it's about stewardship and using materials judiciously uh, not overusing not driving resistance uh, not causing more problems than you're solving so it's a cost to benefit approach <clears throat> so you've mentioned now a couple times you know, first saying that you know the mosquitoes hadn't adapted to some of these bacteria pesticides and then driving resistance is that a big concern is there evidence that that's happening with any of the the methods of treatment Yes, um, very much so. Mosquito resistance is a, uh, I think, running parallel. You've probably heard about antibiotic resistance mm -hmm. and bacteria becoming uh, resistant. This is um, a parallel situation. Uh, many of the uh, adult control materials are, um, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. Uh, and there's uh, evidence of um, resistance in most places, especially with Pulex mosquitoes. Um, we found plenty of evidence in Chicago. Uh, what are Pulex mosquitoes? Pulex. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's okay. Um, uh, they, they live in poo water, so they, you could call them Pulex. <laughs> and, we, and we have. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, they... Uh, uh, that's the northern house mosquito, um, and it's a, uh, a mosquito that was brought here hundreds of years ago from uh, I don't know, Europe or something, probably, uh, and is widespread uh, throughout the United States, um, from Florida all the way up to Chicago or even further north. And it's the main vector of West Nile virus here in the United States. It lives around homes. Uh, standing water catch basins are really prolific source. Stormwater catch basins other sorts of stagnant, uh, disgusting water. It's uh, what they like. Yeah, I, I got off track there, but... <laughs> oh, we're talking about resistance, so there's evidence that oh, you know, yeah. there are... <laughs> yeah, they are as evidence uh, widespread around the world, uh, Culex mosquitoes, and I, and I say Culex generically because they, they are actually a species complex. There's a lot of different um, uh, varieties and species within Culex. They're really hard to differentiate by looking at them. But yes, there is uh, resistance, uh, pretty widespread, um, 
or the evidence is becoming more wide, widespread. 80s Egypti, the uh, issue kind of in the south, also evidence of widespread resistance. Um, it's occurring, or there's evidence that it's happening in larvicides as well, um, not um, BTI, but um, there's another bacteria called Bacillus spiricus. Um, they can develop resistance to that if it's overused. Um, there's products derived from soil, fungus, uh, spinosad. Um, they can develop resistance to that. Um, so um, managing resistance is a big part of, of mosquito control activities. <clears throat> so where around the country uh, are they doing mosquito control? You mentioned that um, uh, that you have to have enough people to be affected, can't be too rural, and there has to be, of course, the habitat. Yeah, so I think um, almost every state does some form of mosquito control. It's just, uh, it's really a, a matrix of who's doing the work, whether it's a specialized district like um, the North Shore, or whether it's done by a health department, or whether it's managed by state government. Um, so in the Northeast, um, like Connecticut, I think manages a lot of the mosquito, the state actually manages a lot of the mosquito control. In Massachusetts, they do have districts, um, but they're funded in part through the state. Um, you know, you, you get to um, uh, the South and Florida uh, is a mix, everything from health departments to districts, Texas, um, same, same thing, uh, actually a lot of health departments. Um, so it, it varies, but uh, I can't think of a state that maybe doesn't have some sort of effort devoted to uh, vector control uh, mm -hmm. on some level. So, um, you know, I wanted to follow up a little bit about that just because, uh, you know, and, and if you're uncomfortable speculating about this, but I mean, legislators have to um, craft these type of legislation, which allows uh, these governments to do it, or maybe they're authorizing some of their general powers issues. What are legislators concerned about when they're setting these things up? What are they trying to balance and, or, and, and what are they hearing? Um, you know, I don't know because there hasn't been much legislation passed other than Michigan that um, has enabled the creation of more mosquito control districts. I think and I'm spec this is speculation, yeah. but I would imagine the, the last two years of Tripoli um, and in Michigan, you know, I think in figuring out how to pay for that work to be done, probably pushed um, the state government to figure out how to, f how to fund it. And, and a typical model is special property tax assessments, you know, mm -hmm. creating a district and having a taxing body. And I think that's what the legislation there in Michigan provided for. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's about balancing that with, uh, with restrictions. Uh, any new uh, taxing authority has to be approved by voters and some right. people aren't comfortable even asking voters to do that. Right, and um, there is parts in the law for that, I think. Yeah. In in our town here, we do have a special mosquito millage for the area, and it tends to be the most popular mm -hmm. um, uh, millage we have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Didn't I mean, you have a, a dam break or something? Like, yeah. Like you did, right? And that created quite the mosquito problem. I oh, heard. gosh, I know. I was uh, <laughs> out, out for a walk, and, I, I, and I'm naturally prone for mosquito bites anyway, but it was uh. pretty brutal for a while. Mm-hmm. I have to say our area, I feel like, has done a great job because even I probably moved to Midland, I don't know, 15 years ago. And as of about 10, it was on my radar as we had something in place and it was happening. I actually had a coworker who um, was instrumental in getting it set up in this area. So it was something that 
people, somebody here was visionary and trying to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm very it's thankful true. for it. <laughs> it's true. You have a phenomenal program in Midland and it's been that way for a long time. You have a, a excellent, uh, an excellent program there. So I have one other question that as you were talking and I guess I didn't realize like how many different types of mosquitoes are there? I mean, in general, it's like, Oh, the mosquitoes are horrible, but you know, you've just rattled off so many. I can't even keep track of like how many different mosquito species and varieties are we really trying to tackle here? Um, well, I mean, in uh, the Midwest and, you know, on average, there's um, dozens of different kinds of mosquitoes. Um, yeah, I don't know, 40 or 50 or 60 or maybe more. Um, but uh, they're not all a problem and they're not all a problem all the time. And some don't really ever bite humans and some don't spread disease and some are actually predators on other mosquitoes. Um, so, uh, in most of the time we're dealing with maybe five species that would ever really become, um, a problem. Um, you know, the Culex uh, pipians is the number one vector. Um, but then you can have a lot of nuisance, other nuisance spe species, um, that will come early in the spring or, uh, will come after rains and, and big broods. So pr probably five. How long does that larva stage last then? Because you said that these things are kind of ephemeral to begin with, shorter <sighs> than fertile pools. Depends on the temperature, but it can be it can be as short as five or six days in the right conditions, mm. and it can be delayed for for weeks. Um, in the case of cooler spring condition, maybe ten or twelve days. Um, I mean, there are some mosquitoes that can be larvae for for much longer. You know, mm -hmm. in more specialized cases. So as we approach spring, uh, what kind of weather sh uh, should residents hope for to have a light mosquito season? <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of it's already set in stone. The eggs, uh, at least for floodwater mosquitoes, are um, they winter over uh, in the soil. So the, the adult mosquito will lay the eggs in the soil, and then they'll build up a, a big egg bank in the soil. So that's why something like a flood like you had can cause a lot of mosquitoes, because the eggs are just waiting, and they can wait for more than a year couple of years probably or even longer uh, and you can get a lot of eggs build up and then one flooding event and then you have this fantastical brood that makes life miserable um, so yeah it's already set in stone I don't I think you know they're going to happen as long as there's eggs in the soil and finally what's uh, what is the future of mosquito control look like uh, yeah, I think that the future of mosquito control um, is going to look like a lot more technology uh, entering the field. I think we'll see more drone usage. Um, there's already a, a big movement to, to using drones and even kind of semi-autonomous drones to, to, to do treatments. Better get at different places, more targetedly apply things. Yeah, more strategic, um, more strategically applied, more pinpoint kind of applications. Um, also, drones uh, used for surveillance. You can actually uh, land them in water and see larvae or use, you know, or sample places that are remote. Um, I think GIS, which is the geographic information system and, and mapping and GPS, you know, the global positioning satellite system, uh, being able to map and inventory all of your larval production sites um, and then have those get flagged um, when they need retreatment uh, or at least reinspection. Uh, I think that is a place that a lot of districts are going to move to. Um, 
and more of a focus on uh, using these technologies to control larval mosquitoes. I think that's that's really going to be the future is um, larval control when they're all together in one place rather than when they become adults and they all you know <laughs> migrate out and, and go their own way. It makes sense, but it's just you know. Uh, before computers and GIS, you know, how, how do you keep track of thousands? And, and our district's only 70 square miles, and we have thousands of different puddles and floodwater places. Mm -hmm. And so, I assume a short time period when you can even do that. Right. You have to, uh, right. If it rains, you have to get out there, especially in, say, July. Um, I mean, you're talking five or six days from uh, egg to adult. And um, to get through that, the district, I mean, you need technology. You know, technology is going to drive a lot of this. And then I think finally the GMO mosquitoes or other technologies such as sterile insect technique or Wolbachia um, will play a role. Um, so what was that last thing that you said? Uh, uh, Wolbachia. <laughs> so that is, um, it's a, uh, basically a symbiont uh, mm -hmm. that uh, lives in the tissues of mosquitoes, actually all uh, insects. Um, and in uh, some cases, especially Aedes aegypti, um, you know, if the two different um, Aedes aegypti have two different Wolbachia, um, d weird things can happen. It's not always predictable, but you can get something called cytoplasmic incompatibility. Um, you can affect how a mosquito will transmit a virus. And so by transfecting um, mosquitoes with different strains of Wolbachia, you may be able to affect uh, their potential to transmit disease or even their potential to reproduce. Uh, and that's being tried in Australia. Um, I think there's some attempts in Florida and some other and some other places. So, uh, Dr. Clifton, where can uh, people learn more about mosquito control? Oh, I think um, our website, the American Mosquito Control Association .org, AMCA. Um, we have a lot of great resources there about mosquito control, uh, and we have a technical advisor who I think he contacted, and he's a, a great resource. So if people have questions. They can certainly reach out to our national organization. All right. Thank you very much yeah, for uh, informing us about this. Uh, I you're know welcome. I learned a lot. We're good. And thank you for helping us uh, understand the bounds of the Overton window. <laughs> My pleasure. I love talking mosquitoes. Thanks for having me today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about the Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.